Hey everybody, Boozy Badger, Boozy Barrister here with episode 5 of Boozy's Legal Funhouse, a weekly exploration of legal concepts, cases, and news. This is episode 5, recorded on February 16th, 2021, the last of our backlog episodes before we start going live every Wednesday morning at 9am with a new episode. This episode is regarding family law and features my special guest Elizabeth McClellan, a civil aid attorney who works for a private organization in Memphis, Tennessee that assists people and domestic violence, family, and immigration matters. You can find her on Twitter at Pope Lisbeth, uh, who also is actually a very accomplished poet and a wonderful guest to have. Uh, I hope you enjoy listening to the episode uh, as much as I enjoyed making this episode. So here is episode five, All in the Family Law, here on Boozy's Legal Funhouse. Hello, everybody, and how are you doing? It's Boozy here with the Legal Funhouse, a roundup of law and a discussion of common principles. I have a guest with me tonight. Would you like to introduce yourself? I sure would. Um, I'm Elizabeth R. McClellan, a.k.a. Pope Elizabeth, on Twitter and pretty much everywhere else on the Internet. Um, I uh, am a civil legal services attorney for victims of domestic sexual violence and violent crimes, uh, working with immigrant survivors in Memphis, Tennessee. So as you can tell, we're going to just have a real knee slapper of a stream tonight. Uh, that's just high hilarity subject matter. Uh, actually, I, Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here. Uh, the The work that you do is first, just to say, because I do some PFA work, which is our version of domestic violence here. Uh, I was at one point for a short period of time a legal aid attorney. Uh, so this is when we talk about frontline law, especially when it comes to domestic and family issues. Liz is right there in it. Uh, before we get going, that I do have. Please to... don't call me Liz. I'm Please sorry. call me Pope. Pope. It's okay. I just I despise no, it of all the shortenings me. of my name. It's the worst. Thank you for correcting uh, me. It was going to be very uncomfortable if you didn't, and you just sat there and grit your teeth, and then afterwards said, "You know, I really fucking hate that." All right. like, okay, you say something <laughs> then. Uh, let me read off the names of my Patreon supporters real quick. So, special thank you to Jeremy the Head Fox and Dragor, Jack of All Corgs, Nikolai, Tezcat, Magic Jag, Whale and Roche Beaten, those are the Trash Panda, Eddie the Weather Fox, Mark Beckwar, Mama T, Uncle Kage, Lisa Lupe, Mark Phaedrus, Netherlinks, Petroff Neutrino, Scott Skunk, Tyranth, Buddy Goodboy Esquire, CC Otter, David Hunter, Ed B. Kali, Fett, Ghost Goat, Grace Jane Gollinger, Ian Delahorn, Jason Knight, Coma Blood Paul, Maelstrom, Mark Whipple, Madelaire, Michael Blocker, Pandemonium Hawk, Sean Rabbit, the Dragon show wheelie and zeros the line i was telling you before i love these streams because i get to be like and thank you so much jim wilcox and now let's turn to fuckle fox 69 and see what they have to say uh and that is just the perfect example of it is reading off the names of the patreon supporters right there who say whatever they want so tonight's topic is family law uh we are joined with pope uh, a legal aid attorney with domestic violence experience, uh, family law experience, and a focus in immigration. And before, while I'm setting up the news articles, why don't you uh, go ahead and plug the charity that you're going to be plugging? I will. First of all, quick correction. I am no longer a legal aid attorney. Ah. I did work for Legal Aid of East Tennessee, and they're awesome. I now work under a LAV and uh, ELS grant for a nonprofit that specializes in immigration so that we can provide holistic services. So I'm receiving some of the same money that a legal aid would be, but I'm not under the legal aid umbrella um, of, uh, it, it, like, if you would donate to right. the Legal Services Corporation, we we don't, 
uh, that's handled in Memphis by Memphis Area Legal Services, and they do a wonderful job. I would, um, we're here to meet that more specialized need of the um, primarily Hispanic immigrant survivors um, who need that English as a second language um, resources and other things that MLAS just doesn't have the resources to handle. Um, and so, yeah, I work for uh, Mid-South Immigration Advocates. It's miamemphis.org. Um, so they can always use some love, um, comes right back to us. Um, but the charity that Boozy is talking about is, um, I raise money for RIP medical debt. Um, I adopt fundraisers usually that other folks have set up for areas, usually in the rural South. Um, and right now we are doing a fundraiser to forgive 6 million in medical debt for folks in rural East Tennessee. Um, and six million sounds like a whole lot, but since they buy this junk debt at a penny on the dollar, um, that really only means raising $60,000. We are just a hair short of $45,000 right now and moving steadily towards $60,000. Um, that is the pinned tweet on my Twitter at twitter.com slash Pope Lisbeth, uh, which is Pope, P-O-P-E, Lisbeth, L-I-Z-B-E-T. Um, and if somebody wants to grab that link and put it in the chat, that would be awesome. Um, and that's what I fundraise money for. If you want to see the other things that I do, other than being a domestic violence attorney, which takes most of my time, um, you can follow me on Patreon at patreon.com slash ER McClellan. And that's where you see all of the wonderful things that I do with my poetry, which is what I do to keep me from going absolutely barking mad, um, handling some of the worst things that I ex have experienced in my career. Well, let me ask uh, Pope real quick. Your last name, how do you spell it? Because I'm actually putting your Patreon link in the chat as well. M-C-C-L-E-L-L-A-N. L-L-A-N? Yep. I believe I have it in there. Somebody correct it if it's not right. Uh, and you brought up a very good point when you were correcting me, and thank you for correcting me, uh, which is the specialization of legal services, especially in those areas. Uh, I, myself, the area I work in, very heavily Hispanic, uh, and we have, uh, for domestic violence here, a program called Safe Burks, which is, uh, kind of a lump of domestic violence support. It's not as specialized towards, uh, immigration issues simply because there's such a Hispanic presence and such an immigrant presence in the area it's kind of assumed in, but there are special issues that come up in those types of cases, especially the ones you handle. Uh, would you care to tell the chat a little bit about the issues that you face that are specific to your clients? Well, first of all, there's just the overall problems that come with being an immigrant who may or may not have documentation. Everybody that I work with doesn't necessarily not have documentation. Many of them are on a path to citizenship or are working through um, an approval with our uh, with our immigration attorneys that handle the immigration stuff in-house at MIA. Um, sometimes people get their citizenship before we can actually get them divorced. Um, that's not actually unheard of um, because we just now brought me in in-house to do that. Previously, they had to contract out to um, private attorneys to do it who weren't necessarily always able to give the cases all of the attention that they needed. Um, and didn't have in-house staff who spoke Spanish and things like that that would make things go more quickly. But specifically with domestic violence, one of the things that's very important and one of the reasons that they chose to bring me in-house and create my position um, 
in order to do this work is that being a victim of domestic or sexual violence, um, depending on the circumstances, can actually entitle you to other forms of immigration relief than you might otherwise be uh, entitled to. Um, under VAWA, um, which all of VAWA isn't still around, but we still call them VAWA um, applications because that's still what they're under. Um, people who are victims of domestic and sexual violence um, from a citizen spouse um, or are victims of a violent crime from a third party if they're raped by somebody else, um, that can give them a path to citizenship. Um, that and we need, and the thing is, every state is different. The feds have very specific things that they want to see. And so it's important that findings are made in particular ways and orders reflect particular things about domestic violence, about the nature um, of the uh, about the nature of the offense, about the facts of the offense. And it's also important that there's somebody who speaks civil legal attorney, somebody that the judges have actually connected with and knows because they forms they won't just accept your order. You can't just say, here, we got an order that says domestic violence. They have their own forms that they want completely filled out, and they want them signed by a, either a district attorney, a member of the police department, or um, a civil law judge that says this person participated in an investigation of or a judicial action regarding the domestic or sexual violence, um, and they cooperated in that. Now, you put that in front of the average judge out in Fayette County, Tennessee, or even here in Memphis, Tennessee, they have not seen that before. They need somebody who is able to explain that to them, and it's a lot more likely that they're going to want to do what you want them to do, regardless of their personal feelings on immigration, which can unfortunately come into it. If you explain to them, look, this is not a free, pa free pass to get your citizenship, this is what they need just to apply. So please give them a chance. So I do a lot of stuff, and it means that I am really more of the public face of Mia for the city of Memphis, because the judicial commissioners don't see my coworkers. My coworkers are at the USCIS office, the U.S. Customs and Immigration office. They're in the Sixth Circuit. They're in the uh, the federal courts and the Sixth Circuit doing immigration work, and they're known by the immigration bar, and they do great work, but. All of that happens basically on a different planet than the order of protection docket, the civil divorce docket, things like that. And as I am doing this work, the uh, stakeholders sort of in this, the other attorneys who work for other legal services, um, the judicial commissioners, the other folks, they are getting to know more about what our programs do. Because now there is one person who is an active advocate for the organization doing what I do, which is to get out there in the trenches and get orders of protection granted, get divorces granted, go into juvenile court and advocate for clients uh, to keep their kids and for abusers to be kept away from their kids or their kids to be adequately protected by supervision or other circumstances. And occasionally go into immigration court, go into um, eviction court and argue that an eviction is unlawful. Um, depending on what grant the is, some of those grants have holistic services where if a person is a victim and needs to reestablish their life and they're having those kinds of problems, oh, 911's been called too many times, they're trying to evict me from my apartment, I can go in and do that stuff too. Um, 
whereas my immigration folks are doing wonderful work saving babies and suing the government for habeas corpus to get babies out of detention and doing wonderful things that I have absolutely no idea how to do because I've never done anything in federal court except argue one motion. <laughs> well, and, and you bring up a good point that I think uh, normally at, at about this point, I may be going to the news, but that there's a lot to cover with you. And we may the very, very quickly, I've just got to cover the three news articles we picked for this week. The first one is, um, is New York is looking to license social workers to go into court as paraprofessionals and represent people in certain matters. Uh, now, my experience, whenever anything like this will come up, uh, the private civil attorneys, such as myself, scream and yell and holler. I'll flip over very quickly to the article. It's on the ABA Journal on that uh, for limited matters. And we scream, we holler, we yell because it is a very protectionist trade for the private civil attorneys. And we say, oh, if you let the paralegals or the social workers do it, nobody will hire a lawyer. But uh, Pope, I feel that you may have an opinion that is completely different from that of a private civil attorney on that matter. Actually, you might be surprised. Oh. Social workers get their legal information from a lot of places. Social workers develop a knowledge of the law that they pick up from watching court, sometimes talking to lawyers if they have access to lawyers that do what I do, but also from things like cops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cops are wrong about the law more often than they're right when it comes to things like what I do. Um, and they, unfortunately, and this is a matter of funding, a matter of education, a matter of funding for education, you know, a matter of having enough bodies to do the work that needs to be done, because that's part of the problem is that everything in this area is underfunded. Um, everybody is doing the work of three people and grinning about it um, and just trying to make it through the day that there's not time for me to go and give extensive lectures. Now, I did see that there's going to be some training and that it's maybe going to be through the law schools, but I've also just met some real bad social workers, <laughs> um, you know, and admittedly, I've met real bad attorneys, too. Um, but attorneys at least are bound by our rules of ethics, our rules of other stuff. Um, we have to carry malpractice insurance. I worry about some of kind of the worst examples of social workers that I've seen running on, well, this is how we've always done it. And this is what old judge so-and-so says the law is, which may or may not be the law or may not have been the law since 1976. Um, and this is what Officer Friendly tells me the law is going in and giving people bad advice. And I also worry about using these programs as an excuse to not do what we should be doing, which is funding legal aid and civil legal aid services. Um, the statistic that they taught us in legal aid that I like to pull out, and keep in mind that this is just talking about legal aid. This is not talking about people like me who are also funded by the government. Just to legal aid alone, the United States government gives less money to legal aid every year than Americans spend on Halloween costumes for their pets. Not Halloween costumes for themselves, Halloween costumes for their pets. That's how little money there is out there for this 
variety of services because legal aid isn't just domestic violence and domestic violence and sexual violence civil services legal aid is evictions legal aid is veterans legal aid is many things um and then you've got people like me that are out there floating on some of the same grants that might be granted to illegal aid other than legal services money there is not a big pile of money and we fight over what there is um, you don't make a lot of money as a legal aid attorney and you will do the work of three people because it's not like it was in the 70s before the private bar kicked their feet and stomped their toes and got legal aid banned from doing class actions and other things that allowed them to self-fund. Um, I know a senior legal aid attorney who's getting ready to retire who remembers when her little rural branch office, which had four attorneys when I was there, um, used to have 12 attorneys and seven paralegals, and they turned it out. But now they can't class action sue slumlords, which would be the best thing for them. There's just not money. There's not money to go around. And if they can find a cheaper option and go, well, we're sending the social workers into court. Well, is the social worker going to my continual legal education classes that I teach? and learning all the brand new updates on the OP statute and reading every case that comes out about it. And, you know, I, I worry about it as an oversight problem because even as an attorney, sometimes the issues are daunting. And so I don't necessarily trust that people who are working with social workers are going to be getting the best of what there is to do. But also that article didn't give a whole lot of information about what they're asking them to do. And if it's just like social workers here in Tennessee can submit the uh, complaint for an order of protection, that doesn't have to be drafted by an attorney um, The uh, because it's all done on a form. It's just ticky, ticky boxes. And then the person writes out their affidavit, um, which is basically the facts section. Well, that's what we do now. And that's not a huge problem. I tell them if the facts are super complicated to call me and I'll look over the affidavit, but usually there's enough there. And if there's not, I can amend it once it gets under under my belt. But if they're talking about sending people into court to do actual representation, and there's the possibility that they're going to have to go up against private attorneys, that's almost a less fair fight than if you were pro se. Yeah, I, 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 to, to give you an idea, I, like I, said, I spent some time as a legal aid attorney, and legal aid attorneys are overworked they're underpaid uh they get the short in the stick one of the things with legal aid is as uh, pope was speaking of is most of the time legal aid cannot take a fee generating case if there's a chance of a collection payment at the end of the day uh there are restrictions on when legal aid attorneys can and cannot take them and most of the time it's after a number of private attorneys have turned it down then you can take it and put the funds back into the legal aid uh, society or group that's taken the case. But it's very restrictive. And a lot of times you got to find somebody who will take a case that can generate any fee. Uh, and they, they may not do it as zealously because as a private attorney, they will say, you know, I'll, I'll suggest my guy take a $5,000 settlement because the most they're ever going to get is $8,000 uh, rather than anything like that. And I don't want to spend the extra time on it. I, I'm not getting paid that much. Uh, whereas legal aid, they're more likely to zealously prosecute and uh, advocate for their clients in those situations because legal aid doesn't expect to get paid a lot of time. So they have every incentive to maximize the recovery for those clients, regardless of the time to be spent. 
on many occasions. Now, in Tennessee, we are allowed to take um, orders of protection, which should be fee generating. Um, and I've even been awarded fees, even when I was a legal aid attorney. The problem then is that as an organization, you're usually still dealing with people that don't have a whole lot of money. And do you want to go after that fee and collect it and put it back in your general fund if that guy also needs to pay child support? Right. Well, no, you don't, because you want as much money as possible going to your client, and he's going to be able to list that debt he owes to you um, as a way to limit down what his child support payment is going to be. Well, well I think very- her, because I have men too. Don't think that I just work with women. I don't. And some of the cases that I have involving male victims are some of the worst cases that I've ever seen because they're not believed. Oh yeah, and, and they let things go, they let things go on until they get so violent that it's not possible to let them go anymore. I, I know that uh, our domestic violence organization here, where I am, used to be called Women in Crisis, uh, and the name was recently changed to Safe instead of Women in Crisis, uh, because it was discouraging uh, male plaintiffs, male victims, from coming forward and uh, seeking protection from abuse orders as a result of that, that the organization was called Women in Crisis at that point. That was a, a very large concern at that point. There's been a big move away from the woman-centered language that you saw in the in the 70s, um, and yet it is still very much a pink-collar field. You don't see a lot of men that work in the domestic and sexual violence field. Um, and the ones that are there are great and do great jobs. Um, but you do still see it sort of as a pink collar occupation. Yeah. Um, most of the Family Justice Center employees that I've ever met are female. Um, or uh, And quite frankly, a lot of the, uh, the men that work um, in this field are either not cisgender or not heterosexual. There's usually some shared marginalization that makes them want to do this work because this work is easy to burn out of. Yeah, I can, um, I can say even counting myself, um, I can count on one hand the number of attorneys I know who do uh, domestic violence and sexual abuse representation for the victims. Uh, and that's counting me. Uh, in my area. Most of them are predominantly women. So, uh, the, the next two articles, and I'm just going to breeze through them uh, very quickly. Lynn Wood, our favorite Trump attorney, is back in the news. Uh, he's They're trying to throw him off of a case in New York. Uh, stadium, oh, Mighty Lynn. Yeah, Mighty Lynn. Cr- crazy Lynn. Uh, and I don't use that word lightly. Lynn Wood has... Which is sad because he used to be a decent attorney and he, he has just gone around the bend. Uh, he is defending Colleen Pence a traitor. He is defending uh, Colleen John Roberts a child murderer. Uh, he, he is a, just, that's fun. And then a, a real heartbreaking story for the last one today, which is a lawyer uh, was charged with phone harassment after his private jet was repossessed. And his partner tweeted his resignation. A San Antonio attorney is facing misdemeanor charges because he sent more than 40 electronic messages to a woman who fled to Mexico to escape him. Uh, he, he is a bar owner and an attorney. His former law partner tweeted their resignation in January after uh, 
there were complaints filed against that attorney at the bar, uh, and his private jet was repossessed by PNC Bank, uh, resulting in a legal battle over how much money he owned. And I just, I have to say, it, it sounds like he was a real stand-up guy, and my heart weeps for him. Well, and there you go with that that stalking and control angle. They don't specifically talk about domestic violence in there, but she fled to Mexico. She filed for an annulment, um, and 40 text messages is not up there in the annals of what I've seen yeah. from abusive and controlling people, but part of the bar complaint is about how he treated her, um, and I have a feeling that there's probably some violent facts in there that they chose to elide um, in favor of kicking the guy about um, his private jet rather than, you know, blasting the details of this woman's trauma all over their pages for clicks, which is, is a good method to take. But if you look at it through my lenses, you, you know, it's like the games where, you know, the little things will be outlined in red. Oh, here, here, oh, the 40 text messages. The 40 oh, text the messages. Fleeing, yeah. Oh, the annulment. Oh, she's 19. Um, and you're way too grown. Um, yeah. <laughs> the the for, the forty I when I saw the forty text messages I went oh there's there's a lot to this because uh, you know forty text well and you're right and I've seen them too and forty is I mean I would actually say forty is on the low end of what I've seen in those situations because it tends to be like maybe forty in a day or, or over the course of two days in the worst case scenarios uh, on that but forty is kind of on the low end uh, for a less than 24 hour period but that's a huge red flag just giant red flag my record um is 527 that i could clearly identify did not contain peaceful communication about the child and i erred on the side of caution on that because i was bringing a 527 count of contempt in a general sessions uh, small claims court. So I was already doing something nobody had ever done. They cleared the docket for me, which there's not a procedure to do. Um, but uh, 527 <laughs> in a nine-day period. He was high on meth. Um, so like 50 messages would come in at a time and then he'd pass out for a while. Um, he would just flip on a dime. Um, he'd be yelling at her about how she was Satan and then talking to her about listen to this song it me it shows how much i love you and mean to you and want to be a father to our child just um just a maddening journey into the mind of someone who's so lost in addiction and also has these domestic violence violence controlling and uh obsessive tendencies and that definitely leads us into tonight's topic which we've been talking about uh in rather ways is tonight's topic is really family law and some generalities and questions about it. And one of the big ones is, uh, how do these situations go bad? I, I always say uh, that a family law client, at the end of the day, is never really happy. Because what they want, when you, when you drill down to it, when you get by all the levels, what they want is for whatever happened to cause them to be in court on a family or domestic matter to have not happened. And... I said that once somebody said, well, what about abuse victims? I said, I, if you take a poll of abuse victims, I'm going to bet 90% of them are going to say, I wish I had never been abused. I wish that had not happened to me. And if you really go down, at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. But it's an unavoidable 
situation, not abuse, family law, uh, is an unavoidable situation when things go wrong. It's the only way out of it on it. And it varies so widely from state to state and from situation to situation. There are some common factors that can be discussed. But uh, by and large, it's a jurisdiction-specific thing, which leads me into what I have to do at this point, which is a disclaimer. The Legal Funhouse is an educational and informational and hopefully entertaining podcast. It is not in any way legal advice. Yes, we are licensed attorneys. We are not your licensed attorneys, unless you have come into our offices and signed an engagement letter where we have agreed to represent you. We cannot give you advice or representation regarding your specific legal matters. Please do not take anything said tonight as legal advice for your specific situation. The best way to get that is to go to an attorney who is licensed in your jurisdiction and ask them these questions. No matter what happens, do not do something and say, a giant fat man who acts like a cartoon badger on the internet told me to do this. That said, uh, Liz, what's your view of family law, Pope? Well, I think my view of family law is colored by the area that I tend to be spending most of my time grubbing around in. But I did some nonviolent family law cases when I was working as a private attorney before I transitioned over into legal aid. Family law is one of those things that's just always going to be with us. Um, relationships are going to end, children are going to need to be cared for, and we have to have a response to that. Um, And courts can't litigate all of the ways people feel about what happens when relationships don't work or parenting is difficult. Um, You know, they're they're not able to make everybody happy. Um, And they're not, you know, the AITA forum on Reddit to say, you are the bad guy and you are the bad one and you should feel bad. Um, Sometimes that happens incidentally, but that's not really their role. Um, What they're there to do is if you're married, divide up your assets and debts in a way that's fair and equitable to everyone, um, given the totality of the circumstances, which makes every family law case kind of its own animal. Um, And they're there to do what is in the best interest of the children. And when you are in juvenile court with people who aren't married but have children together or children who are being abused and neglected, whether the parents are married or not, uh, the juvenile court is there to, once again, protect the best interests of those children and make orders that are consistent with the best interests of those kids. And that that brings up – I'm sorry, go ahead. And it it is, in a way, the hardest area of law that – It's one that you hear lawyers say, oh, I'll never touch it. I don't want to do it. Lawyers that do things that I would never want to do with my life are just like, I I would never do what you do. I hate family law. And it's because more than anything else, people, people get emotional about their money. They do. They get emotional about their money. And even divorces with no children can be very fraught if there's lots of assets. And sometimes even if there's just sentimental assets. Um, but people about their children feel the most that there is to feel. And so there's never a great outcome because what you wish is that everybody was doing the right thing and everybody could just work this out without having to involve the law to make it work. 
what you wish is that everybody was doing their best. Um, and sometimes everybody is doing their best and it's still not enough. But when you have to get the court involved in something where there's a lot of feelings that are hurt in a way that just doesn't usually happen with something like a business dispute or a car accident, you may be mad at the guy that rear-ended you and messed up your bumper. Um, you know, and you may be very angry if you were very injured, you know, by someone who was doing something that's obviously negligent. But by and large, you know, the person who has to go to court because their insurance company had to pay off a new door because they got side slammed and didn't get hurt too bad doesn't feel the way about their legal case that a person who is like, these are my children and I want to protect them. And the other person that I married is doing these things that are harmful to them. Even if those things aren't a kind of harm that the law can necessarily redress. And that's where it gets kind of complicated. Now, I do want to, but legal inspiration brought up people have spent tens of thousands of dollars arguing about the custody of the family dog. Dogs are awesome, yep. don't get me wrong, but knowing that tells you how intense they get about actual human children. And it actually goes into a wonderful question from Quaxum Bethedida, uh, from uh, the Discord, which is, what's the worst outcome for household pets you've heard of in a divorce case? Uh, this is where things get not trigger warning, but very sad. Um, in Tennessee, there is a law, it is a very good law, um, judges don't necessarily like it, but it's a good law that in an order of protection situation that under no circumstances shall somebody who is found responsible on an order of protection be allowed to keep custody of a commonly held domestic animal. So if there's a family dog, family cat, um, somebody's getting custody of that, but it's not the person who did the abuse if it's found that they did the abuse. And that's because, of course, that we know that people who commit domestic violence, one of the sort of harbingers of that is that they harm family pets as a way to abuse and either just because they are violent or because as partially as a way to abuse and control and emotionally manipulate the people that are around them. Well, the unfortunate circumstance is that if you're fleeing domestic violence, you don't necessarily have the money for a lease that will let you keep the family cat or the family dog with you. Um, and we work with the animal shelters, and some of them do wonderful work finding long-term fosters and things like that to keep animals with their family. But it's just not something that everybody can do and not something that's available in every circumstance. And so I have had circumstances where a much beloved family dog has to go to the shelter because that's what the law says has to happen. Now, of course, they're able to use that in certain to certain degrees in their marketing to try to get that animal adopted. Um, and I don't know of any cases in which those animals were euthanized, which is wonderful. Um, but, uh, you know, it is... It is tragic and traumatic when you have to take your child out of a situation or yourself. I love my pets, you know, but particularly when your child has a cat or a dog or a lizard that it loves and you're fleeing with what you can fit in the back of the car and they won't take Rover at the shelter. Yeah. 
and I will I, I will say that's interesting. Uh, I, I I agree one hundred percent. The the family pets are typically a manner of control. Uh, I, I find it interesting that Tennessee has a state law that says that. Um, I know Pennsylvania very much uh, takes the majority view when it comes to pets, which is their property, like any other property. And that's one of the things that I've run into in private practice, uh, especially in family law cases, is the understanding that while we feel that our animals are part of the family, and for all intents and purposes, they are part of our family, uh, the law does not view pets in the majority of jurisdictions uh, as such. They view them as property, simple property to be divided. Uh, I have seen custody agreements that have come down regarding pets. And when people say, well, the judge will approve it and I'll have the dog this week and they'll have the dog next week. And, and I'll say, yeah, the judge won't approve it. And the judge won't approve it. The judge will look at this as you, you guys trading custody of a car back and forth every week. You have to, whatever agreement you come to between yourselves, okay. But the judge isn't going to put it in order. It's, it's, it's too ripe for conflict down the road when things happen. Um, now, I do know there are some jurisdictions that start to take kind of a, a hybrid view and view it more like child custody on that. Uh, you have a related question from Dr. Quaxum in the chat. Uh, does that Tennessee law include or exclude service dogs? I, I am assuming, uh, say, that the abuser has a service animal that is also a family pet. Um, it says domestic animals. Um, I don't think anybody has ever taken that up to interpret it um, because it's not a provision that even gets used all of the time. Um, because sometimes if you don't bring it up to the judge, it doesn't get ordered in the order. And sometimes the person is much happier to leave the dog with the abuser, especially if there hasn't been any violence directed that way, than to have them sent to a shelter. So it doesn't always happen in that way. Um, it's just about, it's the judge just doesn't have discretion to order an an, a domestic animal um, kept or held. But it's, it does say by the petitioner. So I would think that the possession of a service dog, usually there are actual contracts related to that with the service organization. And so I don't think that you would be able to take someone's service dog I wouldn't want to be the one arguing that you could um, as an issue of first impression in the Tennessee courts, um, because it's usually says that it's kept or held by the petitioner, the petitioner being the person who is seeking the order of protection. So it's usually the the statute is very obviously aimed at the family dog, the family cat, um, you know, the stray that you feed rather than a dog that is going to have actual paperwork that says someone and who is an individual owns this dog, if that makes any sense. And that, that actually kind of brings up an additional point there. Uh, when you said there hasn't been any violence directed towards the animal. Uh, and this is kind of my question, because it, it has been my experience, especially when you're in a domestic violence situation and somebody is fleeing an abuse situation, that sometimes the loss of control over the person will cause the abuser to redirect towards an area that they have never directed the abuse towards before. And I've ran into that in family law cases where 
I've had to sit a client down and say, you're going to lose custody of your kids if you don't stop interrogating them for four hours on the couch every night to find out what this person who ran away from you is doing. <laughs> and those are, are new ways to come out. Have you ran into that at all? I haven't seen that happen. That doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Um, I'm thinking of people who, you know, you can be a horrible person and love your dog. Hitler loved his dog. Hitler's dog probably loved him. It's a dog. It's just how it is. And so some people are real connected, especially when I lived in Upper East Tennessee and worked for Legal Aid out there. You know, that's my hunting dog. It's my dog. I don't even necessarily let my children and wife have a fun family pet relationship with it because it's my dog. Um, and so you see that kind of situation where the person leaving the situation is like, I don't even want that dog. That's his hunting dog. I don't care. I just want him to not have a gun. And that's a mandatory, okay. um, that's a mandatory requirement as well. Can the dog have a gun though? A dog cannot have a gun. Okay. Dogs are not okay. allowed to own guns in Tennessee. Yep. They're probably the only ones that aren't allowed to have guns in Tennessee. <laughs> Do dogs and domestic abusers. Those are two classes. Dogs, of... domestic abusers. Yeah. If you got a cat, though, your cat can get an M16. Just letting you know. Don't open carry if you're black because, well, it's like that down here. Um. Uh, and really, with family law, it's important to recognize sometimes that, uh, to some extent, we're still making this up as we go along. I mean, family law as we have it now is a relatively recent development in the history of English common law, isn't it? Oh, yeah, because uh, divorce, as we understand it, as a dividing of equities, didn't used to be a thing. Um, and divorce as something that women could seek independently on their own didn't used to be a thing and even being able to have your separate bank account without your husband or your father's permission has only been a thing for a blink of an eye um you know depending on how old you are you may have relatives that were alive who weren't allowed to have their own charge card account um or weren't allowed to have their own bank account um so this is incredibly new compared to the vestigial beasts that are co basic contracts or even arbitration agreements and things like that. Those are old, you know, hoary white whales compared to what we've got going uh, with family law. It's still very much a developing area um, and it continues to develop because human relationships are being recognized in ways that they haven't been before. Um, I'm doing my first ever gay divorce um, very soon. And that just kind of, gay divorces have been going on here for a lot longer than that but because i just haven't had very many because of the geographic regions that i've been working in and who has reached out to me but i have one now um and the forms and things aren't even set up for it yet um i'm gonna have to mark through official forms where it says husband and wife and have put husband and husband um, and there have been some very fraught litigations about things like that with where the state decides, well, we don't want you to be able to do this or that. Um, Tennessee is working on trying to ban um, LGBT people from adopting on equal terms by allowing uh, the vast majority of the adoption agencies in the state um, being religiously affiliated, allowing them to discriminate. Um, in deciding who adopts kids and gets them out of the system. 
Um, so there are new developments all the time. Um, and uh, I think there probably will continue to be for some time, um, especially because there are two major approaches in the United States. And I don't know if you wanted to talk about that um, because it is kind of a time intensive subject and I, we don't have all that much time tonight. Uh, I mean, the when it comes to divorce, the two major approaches or? I'm talking about community versus. Oh, uh, it's and we can break it at the very, very simple version, because I, this is a bomber side overview is marital property versus community property. Marital property is the division of property is based off of from the date of marriage to the date of final separation. That That's what you're dividing. All right. Anything you had before the marriage is not subject to division. Now, an increase in value in that during the course of the marriage could be separated and subject to division. But what's yours is yours. What's mine is mine before the marriage and then after the date of final separation. Community property is essentially everything that comes into the marriage. That's everybody's property. That's all subject to division. You walk in with a million dollars in your bank account. You're married for 10 years. Guess what? You're dividing a million dollars. That that not only the interest on it, the whole thing. It's all part of it. That's the the high level bomber site overview of it. And as Popa said, it's a very intensive thing. Now there's only what? How many community property states are there? It's it's the minority. It's only like what? Eight? It's a minority. There's yeah. only a handful. I, yeah. I don't remember exactly how many. Yeah. Um uh, now that's, and it's a fun thing because you, you fight about, I've done this in divorces, uh, where you fight about, uh, well, the house was his before the marriage. Okay. But you were married for 10 years. And over the course of the 10 years, house was at 120,000. You got married. Now it's worth 200,000 as of the date of separation. So we argued that 80,000 increase is actually marital property. Uh, because your spouse contributed to the upkeep of the house and their resources during that time frame, so it should be divided. And it's not a 50-50 split. That's a real common misconception, is it's straight down the middle, everybody gets 50%. That's not really what happens. Uh, the court determines, in many cases, what the equities uh, demand as to be a split. So, you know, there may be a resource where you say, well, 70% of that should go to husband, 30% of it should go to other spouse um, in that situation. And then you may have another one where they're saying, well, 60% to other spouse, 40% to, to spouse one um, on it. And it really is, it's a labor-intensive process. Most of those actually will end up getting settled. I mean, very few divorce trials, really, uh, for your common divorce. Most things end up getting settled because attorneys and clients sit down and uh, we have a settlement conference, and we come to an agreement on these splits uh, on it. it uh, child support is formulaic a lot of times. It's not, you know, well, this is fair, that's fair. It's a formula. I, I could pull up right now my state's child support calculator and go through it, enter the information, and tell you, this is what the support master is going to order you to pay. Uh, and if you want to pay less, then what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to appeal the support master's ruling to the common pleas judge to make that determination. So it's, it's very much is a straight calculation on some things. Uh, with and it. it's possible even when I do see trial, I see trial because of children. Oh, yeah. um, partially because I don't get into, get into cases with people who have the kinds of resources that you spend, you spend lawyers trial money to go divide. Um, you know, I have people who have got to decide what to do about one house and, uh, you know, 
couple of cars and if that you know you're lucky um but uh when people do i've even had cases where at mediation because mediation is required in tennessee domestic violence victims can choose uh to forego mediation but a lot of times that makes the judge unhappy so we'll do mediation with a domestic violence certified mediator which is the thing you have to if you're due mediation with a domestic violence client you have to have a domestic violence certified mediator they take extra hours and do other stuff and most of them are happy to keep the clients away from each other so they never even glimpse the other party um and that's my my rule for going through mediation because a lot of times we can solve things at mediation if this is not a case where we're arguing that the parent's rights should be next thing determinated. Um, if we know that the judge is going to award some visitation, it's sometimes better to pick the devil you know, which is, I don't want him to have any visitation, but you're my lawyer and I trust you and you're telling me he's going to get some visitation because we don't have enough evidence to get him put purely on supervised or the violence was primarily directed at you and that's just they're unlikely to do anything that so severely limits his paternal rights but let's work out a schedule that works with you because if not we're going to leave it up to the judge to what the schedule could be and he could walk out of here saying he gets every other weekend and two weeks in the summer and that may not be what you want um, and once you've done that, there's no go back and say, well, no, I want the deal we <coughs> talked about in mediation. You know, it's it's a take it or leave it kind of deal. And I hate having to do that um, because some of these I wish I could litigate out. But you get to know your divorce judges. You get to know your divorce court. You get to know your state's temperature on certain things and what your state law says. And especially if the children are real tiny and aren't able to testify themselves about what happened to them um or you know the effect on them of you know dad screaming horrible things at mom or mom hitting dad in front of them you may not be able to get the proof that you need to get that person what they should have which is purely supervised visitation um and i had one case where we got supervised visitation um as an agreement by agreement then we couldn't find anybody to meet to to do the supervision um there weren't resources it was a real rural county they didn't have a program that sponsored that um we found a church that would do it for a little while and then they picked up on all the weird vibes between the parents and decided they were out um and it just ended up that the kid just aged out while we were arguing about how visitation was going to be supervised and that kid was old enough to testify but had some there were some reasons why we didn't necessarily feel that was the most appropriate thing for the child because i never want to put a child on the stand i don't want to do that to a child it's scary as much as the judges try to make it not scary it's scary to stand up to your mom or to your dad um even when they have to just talk to the judge and the lawyers in chambers no matter how many times you tell them, I'm not allowed to tell your mom or your dad what happens in here. That's the agreement that we've all made. Children know adults lie. Yeah. Adults lie all the time. And, uh, and, and so, and, and quite frankly, the kids are right to suspect it because I, I guarantee you uh, there are attorneys who sit there in the in-camera chambers 
and and we'll hear what is being said to the judge. Maybe they don't go out and give their client the full report, but they intimate what was said. Uh, I mean, that's the most I will do is say it wasn't anything bad. Yeah, I did, and I. I know guys where we have gone in chambers for that. It's called the in-camera interview. And it is uh, essentially the child is testifying, but to take away the pressure of the courtroom. Uh, Everybody will agree that it'll be in camera. And a lot of times uh, here, I know one of the judges that I like to work with the most, he'll actually tell counsel, submit your questions to me. I'm the only one questioning this child. You all can be there, but you will shut the hell up and sit in the back of my chambers while I will ask this child questions. Uh, It's to keep the kid from having to go through the whole process of being on the stand and swearing. And you raised something interesting uh, a moment ago when you said uh, none of this has been directed at the child, uh, especially in regards to, um, to domestic violence. Uh, and I feel there, there's something called the best interest analysis, and it's what's supposed to control the determination in custody cases. Uh, the focus is supposed to be what is in the best interest of the child, especially when it comes to custody. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, we have 16 factors that are enumerated in the best interest analysis. And you weigh all of those factors in making that determination. That's what you're arguing to the court. Well, one of those factors uh, is specifically domestic violence to the extent it has impacted or been directed at the child. An order uh, for domestic violence against a spouse is not necessarily going to be considered in a custody matter if there's no indication that it has psychologically or physically harmed the child on that. It's not supposed to come into that analysis, and it seems counterproductive, but there are times where that will be argued, you know, well, yeah, he, he beat his wife. Yeah, she beat her husband. But they never did it in front of the kid. Tennessee does have one very progressive statute in that regard. And to the extent that Tennessee is progressive on domestic violence issues, and it is, oddly, um, because we're not progressive on very much, um, it's because of my former employer, the Tennessee Coalition to End Domestic and Sexual Violence, and the tireless work of Kathy Walsh, um, their director. Um, who is just an amazing, amazing lobbyist, amazing advocate um, for people undergoing violence. In Tennessee, we do have a law, and they keep trying to get rid of it by making a broader change that assumes joint custody and makes you work backward as to why you shouldn't have joint custody. But we have a law that says that if the person has committed domestic violence against anyone in the relationship, in the family relationship, their parenting time must be limited. Now, that's all it says, but it does mean that if you can get a domestic violence finding or you've got a prior order of protection where you got a domestic violence finding, you can always get your client primary residential parent. That's, um, I think that's a wonderful law. <laughs> I think it's yeah. wonderful. I, you can always get them primary residential parent. That status sometimes means a whole lot and sometimes doesn't mean a whole lot, but it does factor into any future litigation and one of the things that you have to think about as a public interest attorney is that especially when we were legal aid attorneys legal aid did not have the resources to take on any cases that dealt with ongoing child custody so if you had a child custody order and your abuser wasn't following it there wasn't really anything we could do about that 
um, because we just simply did not have the resources. We had more divorces than we could handle. We had people sitting on waiting lists. Um, you know, we had a lot going on. So one of the things that I have to think about is by the time that this plan becomes an issue between these parties again, are they even going to have access to legal services? I'm grant funded. The next grant that we get may not let us do that kind of work. We might get lucky and it might, but it might not be there. They may not be able to come back to our door for free services. And so one of the things that I'm always looking to do is a plan that everybody can live with and a plan that spells out everything in minute detail. So if that, that client has to go back to court by themselves, God forbid, that they can point to chapter and verse that says this other party's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, Let's go over here. We have Skylar Ringtails asked, what is the most interesting piece of evidence introduced in a family law case that you know of? Interesting piece of evidence. Um, probably the most shocking thing that I've ever seen. Um, and it was an order of protection case. I can't remember whether it was attached to a family law case and it wasn't my case. But, um, uh, the police had not collected into evidence a sweatshirt that a young lady had been wearing at the time when she was beaten in the face, causing her to bleed. Um, and she was so determined. She wasn't my client. Um, this is just something that I saw um, one day when I was waiting in court. She was so determined that the judge was going to see the extent to which she was harmed that she carried that blood-stained sweatshirt around in a plastic Ziploc bag and she brought it to court with her to say, look what he did to me. And people will do things like that. Um, you don't really get interesting evidence my, in my cases unless it's the kind of horrible, interesting train wreck can't look away. Um, I mean, I have some recordings that if you really like listening to people shout and manipulate you're the kind of person who finds analytic you know analytic listening to something like the jonestown tapes uh, an interesting intellectual exercise you would see the exact same thing happening on a small scale if you listen to those tapes but generally what i have as evidence is i've got photographs i've got video i've got audio recordings i've got pictures of various injuries um or i've got testimony um i don't often have you know there's not very often that you get kind of the clue um you know the wrench kind of coming into evidence kind of thing now i i actually and it, it's a it's a little more levity uh on this but uh the first thing you have to understand is if your spouse is cheating on you for all intents and purposes it doesn't matter in a divorce anymore. Okay. Uh, while many states maintain some form of fault-based grounds as a way to get a snap divorce, uh, when you can't, like Pennsylvania, for example, uh, we have both fault and no-fault divorces. No faults take longer and are, are can be drawn-out processes at times because they're almost always uh, divorces by abandonment or by consent. We have fault-based provisions, and the fault-based provisions are really 
uh, you know, adultery, spousal abuse, things like that. Things where whether the other party's got to agree or not, it doesn't matter. You still get a divorce. Okay. And there's no other preconditions. You just prove that. And it used to be fault-based divorces were the only way to get a divorce. And it would affect so much. It could affect property division. It could affect custody. It could affect alimony questions. When the states put no fault into effect, a lot of them took away the effect of a fault-based divorce otherwise, uh, other than making it possible to get a quicker divorce in cases where fault can be proven like that. Uh, it doesn't impact so many things. Now, we, somebody had asked earlier in the chat about prenuptials and uh, fault-based divorces can be amazingly important when you're dealing with a prenuptial agreement, which is a contract before marriage that says, if X, Y, Z, then I keep my stuff and you leave with this stuff and we don't, there's nothing to divide after that. Uh, but for some reason, clients always want to introduce, especially when they've been wrong, they, they want to be vindicated. So they want to introduce evidence of fault. And uh, I have been in a courtroom on a case where adultery had been alleged in the complaint. And uh, for the evidence, I had text logs that had been uh, provided to me. And looking at the text logs and looking around the courtroom, I realized I had seen everyone's genitals. The, the photographs and the text logs, literally every party's genitals were in those photos, and I was going to have to introduce them into evidence for the fault-based grounds on the divorce. And it's a little discomforting to have to walk up and introduce something to go, if we could turn to the message labeled this day, and do you see the picture? Yes. Is that your penis, sir? Um, not a question that they prepare you to ask in law school. It's one of the very few fault-based cases I've actually had to handle, though. Uh, most of the time, once I explain to my clients fault doesn't have an impact unless there's a prenup involved anymore, uh, especially in these circumstances. Uh, they they let that go at that point, but it, it was always. I thought of one. I thought of one that's funnier and more fun, um, and it tells you how important judges who have done family law have seen it all. Um, if you've got a, a family law judge that's been on the bench any length of time, they have seen every dirty and stupid trick that people know how to and people think they're so original um this was an alimony case this was a um an alimony enforcement it was my one of it's my very first case as a baby lawyer it's the very first one i was ever assigned it was an alimony enforcement for a sweet little lady who lived on a fixed income um that went to my dad's church and he referred her over to me because i could get fees um, for doing that alimony enforcement. And even if I didn't get that much fees, it was a good way to, and it was a clear cut. Um, this guy had the money. He ran a successful business. He just didn't want to pay it. Um, and that one ended up real funny because the wife he had when I was prosecuting him for the alimony ended up hiring me later, uh, to get her divorced. And they each signed a conflicts waiver, um, that they promised they wouldn't fight over who was getting what out of his estate as long as I could be both of their lawyers. But uh, he had driven his work truck to court, which is normally fine. Um, but there had been some problems in the tax returns that he had t turned into me via his lawyer, which I don't think his lawyer had reviewed before he looked at them because I don't think his lawyer was party to this attempted at fraud. All of the schedules 
um, which are the things that are attached to your tax return if you have your own business and they have all of the nitty gritty numbers, had the pages where the numbers that were entered pulled out and only gave me the sum pages. So, and they were conspicuously missing from about three relevant years. Um, and so at the beginning of this trial, because this discovery was supposed to have been presented to me a long time before that, but it hadn't been done. Um, he gave it to me uh, 36 hours before trial, and I spent a lot of time reviewing it and then discovered that issue when I was trying to add some stuff up. I drew that to the court's attention because I needed I needed my records to be able to go forward. And so the judge said, well, show me what you have. And I passed her my copy. And then she starts flipping back in the divorce file. And flipping back and flipping back. This is one of the first trials I've had. It's probably one of the first trials that I'd had that wasn't in a small claims court. And the clock just keeps ticking. And 15 minutes go by. And 20 minutes go by. And Claire Bird, who occasionally does not know what she's doing when it's not family law, but always knows what she's doing when it is family law, looks up and says, I'm going to put you under oath. <laughs> she puts the defendant under oath she's like I have some concerns about these tax returns one it doesn't appear that you provided Ms. McClellan the records that she asked for in completeness and she's right that she can't figure out what you're making because these pages are missing but then I went back and looked at your tax returns from when you originally got divorced because I remembered this case and you make more money now than you did then, but you're saying you can't pay the alimony I told you to pay. And I saw some things in your tax returns that concerned me, like the fact that you're taking 100% business use on your truck. But I know that when I walked in here, I saw your truck with the name of your business sitting outside the courthouse and you're not here on business work. <laughs> Judge gave him so much of the business, they dropped their counter complaint trying to reduce the alimony in the middle of trial so that like, he couldn't get himself in any further trouble. So that's, that's a good one. Uh, which that's which actually Tez can't the magic Jaguar and asked was the most bizarre slash interesting family dispute case you've had to arbitrate or go to trial on. If any, um, <laughs> Oh, wow. Like all of mine are, are somewhat bizarre. Um, yeah, that that's the the ones that are probably the, that have been the most and actually are kind of the most heartbreaking for me are the ones where you get people in and they have a, a deep, dark secret that's not really deep or dark, but they would be so embarrassed if it gets out and they are willing to just give up anything to make sure that their spouse will not broadcast that. Uh, I, I've had people come in uh, with uh, kinks that they have or things that they like, and, uh, you know, grown men in tears because, oh, if they post those pictures, everybody's going to laugh at me and things like that. And those are heartbreaking. They're not bizarre. They're, they're bizarre to the extent that you, you don't think of that aspect a lot of times. Uh, but that, that, those are probably the, the ones that get me. The things that I have that are bizarre to me are just horrible to other people. 
So I don't necessarily want to tell you those stories. And in some cases, I wouldn't feel right telling you those stories because it's too much of other people's business. Um, but I will tell you about one of the most bizarre outcomes that I negotiated in a mediation. Um, it was a divorce that I was doing. This was not a domestic violence divorce. There was a lot of emotional abuse. Um, these were unusual parties and I wasn't excited about taking them to trial because this was in the middle of the South and mom was a pagan and dad was an atheist. Um, and that was coming up because uh, certain things in the parenting plan, instead of being scheduled around Easter and things like that, needed to be scheduled around the dates of certain festivals um, that these folks attended that were regular parts of their children's lives. Um, and there was some question of who was getting custody of the festival in a certain sense till one of them got banned <laughs> over this exact issue um so there were there was a lot of bitterness and a lot of feelings and the big issue was what was going to happen with the children and the children were really close in age uh both of the children had uh um uh mood regulatory disorders um one of them had adhd and one of them uh had autism um, and they fought like cats and dogs, like siblings will that are super close in age. And we just could not forget. Nobody wanted to agree to not be the primary residential parent because nobody wanted the other party to have the upper hand if they ever decided to move. Um, because this guy had a graduate degree and had talked about moving to Europe and doing other things. Um, and we eventually negotiated the afternoon of trial, because they had us go talk to the special master before we were set up for trial in the afternoon. They sent us to a conference with the special master in the morning that mom would be primary residential parent, but dad would have primary custody of the son and mom would have primary custody of the daughter. And the visitation was set up so that the children were always together on the weekend. Hmm. So it that actually worked perfectly. It was bizarre. We weren't even sure the judge was going to sign off on no. it and approve it. But it gave both of them the space that they needed without being so cramped up against the other siblings' competing access needs that now they are closer than they have ever been because they got a little space and everybody could work on everybody's stuff. And the ADHD came from dad and he got the ADHD kid and they he taught him a lot of coping mechanisms, really helped him improve. Um, and mom was better at dealing with the daughter's autism and dealing with all of that. Dad didn't have a whole lot of great coping strategies for dealing with parenting a child with autism. And it really ended up working out absolutely for the best when we literally split up the babies and then they just spent every weekend together like kids and spent the rest of the week getting individualized attention from the parent they were each closest to that, that uh, is... we talked we talked to the kids about it because it oh. was such a bizarre thing and normally we wouldn't do that normally you don't normally it's kind of discouraged but the special master wanted um so we got the kids on the phone and we were like you know how would you feel if you know, son went to go live with dad and you went to go live with mom and the two of you were together on the weekends. I don't ever want to be together with him. He's terrible. <laughs> I don't ever want to be together with her. She sucks. 
You see, it's a great example, though, of what we were talking about earlier on how sometimes we're, especially with family law, we're making this shit up as we go along. Family law is one of those areas of law that really demands uh, more than others that practitioners be willing to sit down and think outside of the box uh, to be creative problem solvers, especially with orders, because a custody order that goes into effect today is nine times out of ten intended to stay in effect until the child reaches the age of majority absent something justifying it. Uh, so you, you do have to think outside of the box when you're looking at that. You do have to come up with new solutions. And the younger they are, the harder it is because you have to write a plan that's going to work all the way up through high school, um, oh. especially if you know your parties aren't going to have the money to come back. I had to do one for an infant recently, literally a year old. Um, and we had to think about everything related to that infant schooling and the father's intention to send the child to private school um, and how we were going to make sure he didn't pick a private school that was so far away that mom couldn't participate in the private school activities. And, you know, when I see the baby at the paperwork signing, he's just chewing on his hand, being a happy, adorable <laughs> little bundle of joy, completely unaware that any of this is going on. Uh, yeah, it can be very difficult at times. Um, Hayden Foxen has asked, what is our biggest best win? And I, I'm going to take the cop-out answer. Uh, my best win is anyone where at the end of the day, especially in family law, I feel like I have gotten my client to a point where they can begin to heal from whatever the situation is and begin to move forward with their lives, move on from whatever was there. Uh, that That's the goal at the end of the day. The goal is not to win, and not for my goal at least, is not to win. It's not to make the other person pay. Now, though sometimes those are my client's goals. But part of my job is to tell my client, the point's not to win. The, the point is to get something that allows you to move forward with your life. And when I feel like we've gotten that, those those are the best wins. And Boozy's really right about that. But I will tell you about a win that has a fun story attached to it because it was a big win in its own way. Um, and it loops back to something. Remember the guy I told you about with the 530-odd text messages? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this was in that same county. It wasn't the same guy. And the reason I knew I was going to have problems with the 532 text messages was that in this other case, um, I had gone in front of the slightly crankier judge than the judge that I ended up with on that second one. And he had yelled at me for bringing um, an 80 message contempt into his court Um and told me that I should have gotten a special setting when there was no procedure to do a special setting in that court, um, which is how I ended up with the nicer judge the next time because he was the one who happened to be in the building when the clerk's office called and asked what to do about my 500-odd count of contempt. Um, this lady was in a bad way. Um, she was safe, physically safe, um, from the abuser because the abuser was in federal prison. Um, but unfortunately he was gang affiliated and he had his buddies, um, watching her house and sending her text messages that were creepy and threatening. Um, especially if there was anybody over there that they thought could be a boyfriend. Um, sometimes if just there were men driving down the street and he was making it very clear in his letters from jail that he was having her surveilled. 
Um, so I got his, uh, I got his jail mail pr privileges suspended. Um, I got her a 10 year order of protection cause she already had an order of protection and he had sent more than two letters from jail. And if you violate your order of protection twice in Tennessee, that can be extended up to a 10 year period. Um, so I got her a 10 year order of protection, um, for her and her child. Um, he it was the only time I've ever had to ask a judge to take judicial notice how many people get murdered in the movie Taken. Um, so that was fun because he had made a bunch of references to Taken and I wasn't sure that the judge, because of his advanced age, was going to be aware of the sheer level of uh, uh, violence. I, 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 just, I just hoping the judge was like, I didn't like Taken. It wasn't bloody enough for me. <laughs> he had never seen it. He didn't know what I was talking about. Um, and uh, then I started talking to her about a somewhat more permanent solution. Because he was in federal prison, but he wasn't going to be not that kind of permanent uh, Yeah, I was like, are you about to tell me you arranged to get a guy shivved? Because, like, I'm down, no. but I think we should stop the stream before you tell me that story. <laughs> no, 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 no. But he wasn't going to be in federal prison for very long. Um, because what they had gotten him on was just wearing a bulletproof vest while being a felon. Um, which is not very smart because they treat it like owning a firearm and it's a violation, but you don't spend very much actual time. And she was afraid he was going to get out. She could not move from where she was because she owned the property and was in not in a good position to sell it. Um, and the thing was, she knew a lot more than she had been telling and I found out that he had been threatening her with that knowledge. Um, that if you say anything about the things that I'm involved in, well, you're a little bit involved in them too, because I've had you get your hands a little dirty. And you'll go down with me, and my mama will get the baby. So I picked up the phone and did something I never like to do which has made a friendly call to the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation field office <laughs> up in that particular area. And I said, well, I have a lady and she's so-and-so's former lady. You remember him? And everybody remembered him because he was wearing that uh, bulletproof vest in a music video, which is how they caught him on it. Um, and he, he cried a whole lot when they he realized that his free, freedom of speech did not keep him from being arrested on that particular charge. And Law enforcement had passed it around and amused themselves, as law enforcement is known to do with the misery of others. Um, and I said, well, I have a lady who wants to talk to you, but I need um, I need immunity for her before you know what she's going to say. I need immunity for her before you know what she's going to say. <laughs> and they knew what all he was involved in, and they had some ideas, and as I said, there was some gang involvement. And they got the idea that it might be worth it to offer her blanket immunity to just come in and talk and maybe give her some access to some property that was sitting around in her house waiting for him to get out of jail. Oh, I like that. And he is still there. And she I, is far away with her baby. I and if like she ever gets that. married again, she'll be able to terminate his parental rights because he's going to be in jail until that baby is grown. I like that. I like that. Uh, we have... Uh, You're going to dance with the devil. You better dance with them right. Uh, apart from pets, what is the stupidest, most inconsequential thing that people fought the hardest for? Not out of spite, though. 
Um, you, you know, I, I can't answer that because I am convinced that when my clients fight over stupid, inconsequential things like, say, a velvet painting of the Last Supper with Elvis as Jesus, um, it is almost definitely out of spite. It is definitely, I don't want them to have it. It's almost never, I really enjoy that, oh, say, velvet painting of the Last Supper with Elvis as Jesus. And we're not talking like young Elvis. We're talking like white rhinestone, fat Elvis as Jesus. Um, it, it is it is almost definitely, I don't want them to have it. No one's in love with that painting except them. Uh, I've actually heard the words, I just want it so I can burn it, in reference to things before. So... Uh, that, that's, that's my answer is something like, though not specifically, but something like a velvet last supper painting with Elvis as Jesus. Often I have the same situation, but from sort of an opposite direction. Um, by the point that you're finalizing a divorce with an abuser, they realize that they've lost all control and that they're probably not going to get it back. And so they're grasping for whatever they can do to hurt the person um, that uh, has separated from them. And so the most I've ever fought over something that did not have a cognizable resale value of anything significant was somebody had grandma's uh, Virgin Mary in a very for a very devout Catholic client. Um, abuser had grandma's Virgin Mary and he was smart enough not to break it because we did eventually get it back um, because if it had gone, come back broken I was going to have him held in contempt of court and thrown in jail for it um, but he swore up and down that he didn't have that Virgin Mary and I had to go search through Facebook photos and do all kinds of things to prove that yes he did it was sitting in the living room he just did not want to give it back to her because he knew that it had such emotional resonance for her my clients often will give up things they shouldn't give up because they just want to be out they want to be done when they want something back it's he has the cribs for the children and not any visitation with the children i need the cribs but he's holding on to them because he knows i can't afford to replace them i need my child's graduation cap and gown um i need my child's band uniform um it's not that domestic violence clients never get petty because they do. Um, they have anger as well as other things that they're working through. But they often know that they can't afford to be petty. And because they understand that they're getting services that they're not paying for, when I put my foot down and say, the judge is not going to look well on us arguing about this $15 chair that doesn't even have any sentimental value. It's just not worth it. Usually they will take my, it's just not worth it because they're more worried again. They're more worried about what's going to happen to their kids. They're, they're, they're way more worried about that. Well, that that actually leads into a question that uh, that I've been sitting on. This is from Sue Deer, um, and it, under the topic of when it's going to be ugly, if one of the spouses has a violent temper and has been abusive, which is the main reason for the divorce, 
What is the procedure for removing said person from the home promptly and without incident? And what precautions should someone take? Um, well, um, that's going to depend a whole bunch by your state. Um, and I don't think it would be real useful to you to tell you what the Tennessee procedure is in detail, because while I can do that, um, in Tennessee, you go and get an order of protection that acts as an immediate eviction order that's good for two weeks, I, I, um, and we argue about it later. And I've got, I'm going to caveat, I know what state they're referencing, and it isn't, it's my jurisdiction. It's a Pennsylvania matter. Um, and this is, uh, it, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, uh, it's much the same. If you have grounds for a protection from abuse order, it will serve to remove someone from the home. Grounds for a protection from abuse order in Pennsylvania would be met in this situation. It applies to immediate family, sexual partners, and spouses. Uh, however, you have to show a likelihood of future abuse. You can use past incidents in relying on that. It does not necessarily have to include police reports. It can be used to exclude somebody from the home. Uh, you would want to follow your county's procedures, and there normally is uh, an organization. Uh, every county in Pennsylvania has an organization that will assist people in seeking protection from abuse orders and will, in some cases, provide counsel for those situations for the abused party. As to how effective it would be, that all depends on when the order is entered or if an order is granted, even on a temporary basis. Uh, I will say what I have advised people in the past is be prepared to go. Uh, if you know that you are going to be filing, uh, you know, seek the order. Have somewhere safe to be when you are seeking the order. Uh, make sure that you have a credit card or an account in your name that is not disclosed anywhere with funds in it because it is unlikely, even if you were to go and apply for it and it were to be granted on the emergency basis, a hearing has to be held within 10 days thereafter. It can take two or three days for the sheriff to serve the protection from abuse order on someone and remove them from the home. Uh, so make sure all that is ready. If it is a potential abuse situation, make sure the attorney is aware of that going in. I have told clients in the past, I am not going to file this until you tell me to file this. And when you tell me to file this, I'm going to call you before I file this and say, I am filing today and then I am taking it to the sheriff for service just so you're aware this is coming. Uh, I have God knows how many files in my office that have come out of those situations where I've written on the front of the folder, do not call home line or something along those lines or send email. They will call or don't leave voicemail. Uh, just so everybody in the office is aware this person is not in a safe situation. And if, the other person checks their voicemails and hears, hey, it's the lawyer from so-and-so calling about this matter. Give me a call back. It's immediately going to put the client in danger. Uh, so th those are my general tips is uh, even if you are seeking protection from abuse, make sure you're documenting everything. Uh, make sure times that you're being yelled at, times that they're punching the wall beside you. 
Uh, anything that's putting them you in reasonable fear of bodily harm, make sure it's documented so it can be recounted in the petition. And uh, on the moment that you're ready to pull the trigger, make sure you're prepared. Have a bag ready to go. Load the car when they're at work. Leave. Even just for a few days, leave and immediately contact somebody to go down to the courthouse with you to file for the PFA. Uh, and you have a friend or a hotel you can stay at for a couple days while it's getting served and ask for exclusion from the premises at that point. Uh, that, that's what I have on general tips on staying safe. And that leads me into a resource that I want to make everybody aware of, because at least for the American viewers, a significant number of states have um, you heard me mention earlier the Tennessee Coalition to End Domestic and Sexual Violence. Um, a lot of them are called Coalition to End Domestic and Sexual Violence. But if you type in your state domestic violence coalition, usually that search string is going to return some organization that acts as a clearinghouse for all of the domestic violence resources and services that are out there in your state. They may not be able to directly provide you services, although they may. They may have um, things like emergency grants to get you gas to get out of the home, um, because I can't tell you how many people um, will only give their spouse enough gas money to keep the car running on fumes so that they can't leave. Um, so when I used to work for the coalition, one of the things that we did was handed out gas cards. Here's $20 in gas. You can get away. You can get safe. You can get to court when you need to get to court because you're out of gas. Um, but Tennessee uh, domestic violence coalitions are there to bring together all the stakeholders in preventing domestic and sexual violence in a state. And they generally have a book of resources by county or by parish or whatever it might be in your area. And they'll be able to tell you they have more up-to-date information than the internet most of the time on what shelters have beds, um, you know, um, what organizations can help you, um, you know, where can you go, what can you do, um, what procedure is used in your county. If you don't know who else to call, um, that can be a good starting place to go to. And almost all of those websites have also designed their UI with a very smart feature um, called an escape button. Yeah. Um, uh, our website has it. If you go to miamemphis.org, um, you uh, there is a button on that page that just says escape. And it's always visible on the page no matter how far you scroll down. And if you click on that button, it will take you to weather.com. So that way, if you are looking at resources on your phone and suddenly your abuser enters the room and might have access to your phone or might be able to see what you're doing over your shoulder. What are you doing? Nothing. Checking the weather. <laughs> and they redirect to neutral sites like that. Everybody doesn't use weather.com. People use different things. Um, but some, some just take you back to Google, you know, yeah. just some, some blank neutral screen where unless they think to go back and see what you were doing, that you're fine. And those buttons are kept and made prominent. Um, we all have procedures like Boozy has um, in his office that are usually built into 
the structure of intakes at organizations like mine to designate a phone number as safe or under what circumstances it's safe. Is it okay to leave you a message? Um, you know, do we need to say we're, you know, do we need to say we're Sarah at the, you know, at the beautician's office? What do we need to say? Um, tell us what a code phrase is that we can go with you so we can know whether he's in the room when we're talking to you. Um, Planned Parenthood actually was one of the first organizations to really get into that kind of secure communication. Um, domestic violence organizations have been following their example for a long time, and it's filtered down into the private bar. But if someone comes to you for help, especially an online friend where you're not in their region and you don't know where to send them, start with their state domestic violence coordinating coalition and if there is one in your state please support the work that they do because the work that they do to keep everything running and to, usually they're actually able to do the political lobbying um because legal aid is not allowed to do political lobbying um organizations like mine aren't allowed to do political lobbying because we get all our fund funding from grants and the government will not usually pay you to lobby unless you're lobbying for something like petrochemicals they're definitely not going to do it for you to lobby for poor people. Um, so those are great organizations to support um, and to look at in your community. They have helped a lot of people and changed a lot of lives. And they are always usually ready to assist whatever comes through their door because that's what they're there to do is be the clearinghouse. You can get a person connected with the services that are closest to them. They're right for them. Right. And that actually, Skylar, uh, is probably the answer to your question as well Skylar Ringtail had asked uh if a person if you suspect a friend or a family member is in an abusive situation what steps uh can or should be taken to address it kind of the same thing uh point them towards the resources that we've discussed uh and I'm just gotta tell you don't be surprised if when you talk about them they do not react well uh it, it some people do not like having it discussed uh and do not like thinking of themselves as a victim and it sometimes can take time to that but i always do encourage uh talk to them uh point them towards the resources that popa has addressed uh and help them prepare be there to support them if if you know they're going to need a place to be give them a couch when they're trying to get out of the situation uh those are the best things that can be done uh, Jamie Lynn has asked how big of an influence are the, and we're almost done here. Uh, Jamie Lynn has asked how big of an influence are individual judges, uh, stating my sister lost custody of her daughter partially because her judge didn't think she looked emotional enough in court. Individual judges can do a lot of good or a lot of harm. Um, I've had cases where an individual judge deciding that somebody was lying who turned out later to not be lying meant that they could not protect their child from an absolute monster um, because they got caught up in the judge's belief that they were just committing parental alienation and that the abuse wasn't happening. Um, there are always going to be individual fails. But what I will tell you is that most of the judges, even the hoary old good old boydest of judges don't actually want anybody getting hit in the face. Yeah. They don't actually want anybody getting sexually assaulted. They don't want that. Um, they may disagree with what the 
people down in the state legislature are doing to address it. They may not agree with every law that comes across, but they are doing their best. And things like what happened to your sister are quite frequently just hallmarks of sexism. Um, and part of the reason that we need a more diverse bench and a better educated bench that doesn't um, assume that a victim um, or a person behaves a certain way or makes the right faces or reacts the right way um, to a situation that isn't healthy. Um, you know, all we can do is do more education and, and do more things because people, judges do tend to get a sense of themselves as the omnipotent, you know, I can spot a liar from 10 feet away and well, nobody really can, because if that were true, there wouldn't be serial killers, um, who operate in their communities as upstanding members of the JC club until somebody finds all the bodies under the house. I mean, it's just, it's just not true. You don't have human lie detectors. Um, cops say they can do it and they can't, um, judges say they can do it and they can't. Um, so you do run into those issues and you do run into individual judges who are bad. And there's a lot to be said about things that could be reformed about the judicial system, but there are very few judges who remain indifferent to these situations for very long because they have to see it. And they know, and if they've been a judge for any length of time, they have to see what happens when they judge wrong. Um, because all of them, and I've heard this expressed by so many judges in so many different places, have to worry that when they make a decision on a case like the kind of cases that I work on, that the next thing that they're going to see is that somebody is dead, and that's their fault. You know, that's that's the risk that they take, mm -hmm. and they take that very seriously. So, you know, you do get individual bad actors, you do get judges who just go off and do wild and crazy things, um, but at the same time, you know, that's just an argument for better judicial education, better education of the bar, and that's the job of people like me, is to teach CLEs, is to teach instructions, um, and to teach people to understand things like adverse childhood experiences from experiencing domestic violence, and why it's a serious issue and why they need to sit up and take notice. And, and I will say, uh, yeah, I, I was lucky. I grew up in a major city. My father uh, was an attorney or is an attorney as well. And he did a lot of family work uh, when I was growing up. And where I grew up, we actually had a dedicated family court. It wasn't just a dedicated family court judge, uh, which is what you see in a lot of smaller counties. It was a dedicated family court. It was five or six judges. All they did was hear family court cases. Uh, I always thought that they uh, they handled those cases uh, maybe with more specialization on it because uh, they that was all they did. They were more familiar with those and tended to keep an open mind. Uh, where I practice now, everybody comes into the Court of Common Pleas uh, now we do have one or two judges who just say, I'll take all the family cases. Um, and they, they're assigned the family court docket. Uh, there's good judges who get assigned the family court docket. Uh, I, I can think of a couple in my area right off the top of my head who I'll say they're fair. They, they go straight by the book on the law and they don't let a lot of motion come into play in their decision making. Uh, and then I have judges who have never, they never practiced family law. 
they just woke up one morning and had been assigned the custody docket uh, where you kind of have to educate them to them. I, I always hesitate when I hear the judge doesn't like me. Um, I, I have found in practice that many times people read the judge as being the cause of their situation. And in several family cases, what I want to say to my clients and don't say to them is, oh, it's not that the judge doesn't like you. It's that the judge is deciding the matter fairly and you're a bit of an asshole. Um, and that's, but it's really common. Oh, the judge always gives the custody to the mother. That, that's uh, the opposite of that situation. You know, the judge, judge doesn't think dads can raise their kids. They always give custody to the mom and things like that. And I'm going, that's not what happens. Uh, a lot of times. Now, are there judges I've had problems with? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, AW Agent X, I'm going to uh, tip you off real quick and just break for a second. I saw your message. What you need to do, go into your Discord, uh, go on, on your user profiles where it says integrations, link your Twitch account to Discord. And when it updates, it automatically updates once an hour, and I do a push at the end of every stream. I'll do a push for it, and it should add you then. Okay, if it doesn't, please send me a message on Discord. Uh, I'll certainly talk to you. Uh, that said, uh, we, we have two questions, but they're really both kind of rehashes of other questions we had. Uh, I know it's late. Uh, I know you're freezing. You, you told me before the stream that your shower was frozen there. My shower is frozen. I oh. have hot water because our sinks are not frozen, but our toilet and our shower is frozen. So oh. that's uh, why I have such a lovely coif. <laughs> today i don't normally look this much like a mad scientist so uh we will go ahead we'll end it here uh pope thank you so much for joining me uh no problem thank you for having me i do want to boost one more time no, for go right ahead i was I, I was actually about to say go ahead and boost whatever you want to boost right now um absolutely i'm pope lisbeth um p-o-p-e-l-i-z-b-e-t you can find me on twitter you can find me parked on many social media sites and judge whether i use them or not um, but you can primarily find me on Twitter. Um, linked as the pinned tweet in my Twitter is the thing that I fundraise for, which is to forgive rural medical debt um, by buying it up and forgiving it at pennies on the dollar. Um, we are raising money for rural East Tennessee, which is where I started my career in legal aid. Um, and you can do that. It's all tax deductible. And there are lots of threads that will tell you all about that wonderful initiative. If you want to know more about what I do when I'm not uh, fighting crime, um, you can check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash ermcclellan. That's E-R-M-C-C-L-E-L-L-A-N. Um, I am a poet. I am an award-nominated poet at the moment. I have two poems nominated for the Risling Award. Um, and you can keep up with my poetry and uh, my other adventures there on my Patreon. And there are usually also unlocked posts um, that round up everything every month. So even if you're not able to donate, I understand that. Um, but I do like sharing my science fiction and fantasy poetry with the world. It's the thing that I do that keeps me sane um, in doing the work that I do. Um, and I enjoy sharing it with the rest of you. And thank you so much uh, for having me, Boozy. I well, really appreciate it. Thank you. It, uh, you. You brought something to the conversation that I could not bring, which is a lot more frontline experience in an area of law that is is heartbreaking and extremely difficult to do. Uh, so thank you for being and thank you for doing what you do. 
I appreciate that. So, uh, folks, that is it for tonight. Uh, special thanks again to Pope here for being our guest tonight. Uh, we will be back next Monday with a new topic uh, for Boozy's Legal Funhouse. Until then, if you like the stuff we do, uh, yeah, look look at the the links in the chat for my crap. But what's really important is you go and you give to wonderful organizations like Mia Memphis, uh, to the debt relief, and uh, to lawyers who are just trying to survive by writing poetry. So, uh, folks, have a wonderful evening. Thank you for joining me for Episode 5 of Boozy's Legal Funhouse. We'll be back next week on Wednesday morning with Episode 6 uh, regarding real estate law and the different types of deeds. If you want to catch it live, you can always catch it live Monday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv slash boozybadger, where we actually record these segments with the audience. Uh, if you want to support Boozy's Legal Funhouse, you can always do so by going to patreon.com slash liquor and becoming one of our subscribers. Or you can go to boozybadger.com or streamlabs.com slash boozybadger and support us that way. Or if you don't want to do any of that, the only thing I ask of you is that you leave us a rating that makes it sound like any of this shit is entertaining. Until then, I'm Boozy. You have a great day.